I'm Carrie Miller, and this is Big Books and Bold Ideas, the show where readers meet writers, and it's good to have you listening. April is Animal Month on this show. We're broadcasting interviews about what wolves reveal about human fear, the science of how a puppy becomes a dog, and much, much more. If you miss any of these shows, you can always find them on my podcast. Today, it's not dogs or monkeys or bats, but bees and beetles and butterflies. It may not seem like it on a summer evening in Minnesota when the mosquitoes are feasting on your skin, but our kingdom of insects is diminishing so quickly that scientists have declared it a crisis. Journalist Oliver Millman writes in his new book, Insects are the most accessible animals in our lives, beyond our cats and dogs, but they're also the most otherworldly and arguably most impressively tenacious beings we share this planet with. Mr. Millman is the environmental correspondent for the British newspaper The Guardian, and his new book is titled The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. And he joins us from New York City. Oliver, welcome. It's good to have you on the show. Great to be with you, Kerry. Hi. I thought that word uh, otherworldly was interesting. Tell me what you, I, I sense there's a lot of dimension to that. Tell me what you mean by that. Yeah, there is. And even people who study insects, entomologists, will remark upon this when they look at insects, especially closely. There was one scientist I spoke to for the book who had spent 20 years trying to find ways to wipe out mosquitoes uh, through means of gen genetic modification. But one day she had this epiphany looking at a mosquito underneath um, a microscope and saw its, you know, you know, huge kind of compound eyes, its kind of translucent wings, all the different kind of colours to it. It kind of looked like an alien to her, but in a kind of very beautiful <laughs> sense. Um, and it kind of changed her perspective on the creatures she was she was supposedly trying to wipe out. And she took a different direction with her research to try and maybe um, uh, do different things to to avoid the spread of disease uh, caused by mosquitoes without killing them off entirely so um they are otherworldly they are uh, they have incredible abilities uh, i kind of you know, found out so many kind of interesting things about what bees and beetles and butterflies can yeah, do you did. um oh. yeah we are quite amazing i mean the the these are kind of incredible feats of kind of strength endurance um the logistical abilities um you know you know Bees can be taught to play soccer. You have these tiny little monarch butterflies that can you know, migrate thousands of miles to the same spot every year. I mean, it's kind of quite, quite amazing to think about what they're able to do, considering they're small, kind of these small, kind of buzzy things that we don't think about that often. Um, so they're kind of these kind of aliens on Earth, and yet they're also the most kind of common and uh, kind of annoyingly so sometimes to us. Um, they they're around seem to be around us all at the same time so there is that kind of slight dichotomy in terms of our relationship with with insects and how we see them yeah you, you know you've just touched on something that i wanted to talk about which is i think beyond our dawning appreciation for pollinators uh and the essential work that they do many of us have grown accustomed to thinking about insects as you know as things we want to avoid or solve, or, you know, just live without the presence of, I mean, I, as I was reading your book, I was thinking, and that section about mosquitoes, I was thinking, 
I now plan an annual trip up to the boundary waters, this kind of these wild lands mm. between Minnesota and Canada around the hatch of mosquitoes because they're so bloodthirsty up there <laughs> and so ubiquitous. You know, I just don't want to be anywhere near them, uh, you know, without the protection mm. of a building to be in. And yet your book gave me a kind of a different lens to look through than their pests get rid of them. And and I'd like to know how you how you kind of wrestled with, you know, this ambivalence that humans seem to have about insects and then your your appreciation as you research the book. Yeah, I mean it's a fantastic question. I think that gets to the heart of the book and the heart of this issue. So for me, it started with this kind of scientific question, seeing all these kind of pieces of research, all these studies from around the world showing these kind of catastrophic declines of insects and kind of trying to figure out as a kind of environmental science journalist what, what that means, you know, how, how to kind of explain that to the public in an accessible kind of way. Um, but but it kind of touched then, I realised, on a kind of deeper question, which was our relationship with insects and how we view them and and you're right we do often see them as as pests i mean we call them creepy crawlies we say people are bugging us if they're annoying us <laughs> i mean we have a whole set of language don't we around insects is quite uh, rude um <laughs> we don't have many fond terms for for insects at all we don't we tend to not think of them and when we do think of them we often think of them as um uh, as as things we don't really want to have around but i think um that is playing into this crisis we are seeing unfortunately um it is leaving us ill-equipped to deal with the insect crisis because life on earth is so fundamentally driven by insect life and the the things that we rely upon the food we eat uh, the ecosystem services we all need to survive hinge on large parts on insects um, and uh, to lose them is to lose creatures that are far more important to us than uh, in a kind of selfish utilitarian way than any other creature on earth really uh, you know as much as we want to save tigers and rhinos and we should do and it would be a great crime for them to to become extinct elephants as well um, we would not really notice their absence in a day-to-day sense um, you lose bees you lose flies, you lose beetles, um, mass starvation breaks out. Um, oh. you, you start seeing the collapse of forests and grasslands and, um, you know, you start seeing um, feces and dead bodies pile up everywhere. I mean, it's a very kind of visceral, terrible thing that, that would happen. Um, so I wanted to kind of illustrate that importance and try and um, give another dimension to our relationship with insects because it is it is a little bit more complicated than just wanting to swat that mosquito or fly that's nearby you. <laughs> you quote a uh, a biologist that I've interviewed uh, named Dave Goulson, Golson, G O U L S O N, and he he says to you, most of life on Earth would disappear if we didn't have insects, and if there were any humans left, they wouldn't be having much fun. Is that just all about food production or is it far beyond that? What, what does he mean? Yeah, um, it, it is primarily around food. Um, the, the great biologist D.O. Wilson, who, who passed away um, last year, he, he kind of put it at about three or, three or four months we would survive in a world without insects. 
uh, it is it is a lot of it is down to food production so if you think about the food we eat um around you know three quarters of the world's um uh, crops uh, are um, pollinated by insects um, we would lose a lot of the kind of nutritious valuable foods on our plates a lot of the fruits a lot of the vegetables um, so you're already seeing unfortunately cases of uh, premature deaths and malnutrition around the world due to pollinator loss because we're already seeing this kind of loss of pollinators so we're already getting kind of glimpse of what that would look like but if all of them were to disappear then we would just be reliant on wind pollinated crops um you know wheat and oats and, and rice and so on um and uh, that obviously would not be sufficient um for for many people um you would but you see more kind of fundamental breakdown you see a kind of breakdown in food webs and the food chains so you know you may not like insects but you may well like birds um you know there's lots of insect eating birds that would perish and are already suffering declines in some parts of the world because they don't have enough insects to eat um so you go up through the food chain you you start taking out amphibians uh, as well as birds you start taking out um other creatures that feed upon um those those creatures um and you end up going up all the way up the food chain to us um so it would completely destabilize uh, uh life as we would know it we would see, yeah, as I was saying before, the collapse of kind of ecosystems, of forests, of, of that kind of thing. It would be a very, very grim place. It's not a place we would want to be in. And um, uh, I don't think we're going to get there. I think insects are going to outlive us on this on this earth. But we don't want to push ourselves into the conditions where we get anything close to that. Hey, where in the world, by the way, would you say the insect crisis is at its most severe? And that Maybe that is a, you know, the canary in the coal mine for other other places in the world that are seeing a uh, diminishment of insects. Where should we look to to say we don't want to get anywhere close to that? Yeah, I mean, that's one of the really interesting things with this, the declines we're seeing here, because I think in other fields of, you know, environmental research and environmental problems, we see you know, the melting ice caps or, you know, these deforestation in the Amazon, these kind of wild right. places, remote places that are in trouble um, and are being degraded horribly. But with the insect crisis, it's here. It's around us. It's <laughs> it's in our backyards. I mean, some of the studies have been taken in places you would think would be quite kind of stable, kind of insect-friendly places. One of the big ones was this study that came out in Germany 2017 it found that the annual average weight of flying insects caught in traps in nature reserves in germany not in farmland or not in cities or next to highways but actually in nature reserves had fallen by 76 percent since 1989 so since the fall of the berlin wall germany has lost three quarters of its flying insects uh, by weight in, it, in its protected areas i mean this is not a country you would think is you know um, backwards in in, right. in 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 ways when it comes to you know nature preservation or the understanding of the importance of of wildlife. Um, Denmark, um, there's this incredible study where this this guy started driving his uh, uh, old beat up Ford Anglia car up and down the same stretch of road in Denmark to count the mugs, amount of bugs that splattered on the windshield, um, and he's been doing that every summer since 1997. And uh, he, he's found a 97% uh, 
um, decrease in a very quiet kind of rural area of Denmark. It's not somewhere you would think would be, you know, horrendous for wildlife. Um, in the US as well, I mean, we're seeing huge declines of bumblebees um, in kind of parts of the US West where you would think they would have very nice, stable kind of place to place to live. Ohio is losing 2% of its butterflies a year. I mean, the list goes on and on. There's this really lovely protected forest in New Hampshire, 83% decline in abundance of beetles since the 1970s. So it's not... It's not these kind of frontline kind of environmental war places that you think of mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, um, you know, some kind of industrial machinery has come in to kind of tear things up. Although that is obviously a huge problem with the insect declines, but it's kind of everywhere. It's protected places. It's our gardens. It's our um, it's our forests. It's it's kind of pretty much everywhere that we are looking so far. And we haven't looked everywhere. We don't know much about what's happening in the tropics, for example, which is where you know most insect life lives. But the glimpses we do have so far you know, are quite um, are quite shocking. I'm Carrie Miller, and you're listening to Big Books and Bold Ideas, and it's Animal Month. April is Animal Month on the show. And we're in conversation this hour with Oliver Millman. He's the environmental correspondent for the British newspaper, The Guardian. And his new book is titled The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. We've started out just getting an overall picture of uh, why insects, why and where insects are declining and what they mean in a general sense to the food chain. Now we're going to zero into some specific insects and we're going to talk about uh, some of the reasons that we're seeing such a sharp decline in insect populations. And Oliver, I want to talk about chemicals because climate change is clearly altering the habitats of insects and we'll talk about that. But it's clear from your book that chemicals are a scourge to to insects. And we live in an agricultural part of the country. You write about what you call the circular addiction that farmers find themselves in with chemicals. What is that? How would you describe it? Yeah, um, I mean, I think a lot of people's ideas of farming is still um, around the idea of a kind of family farm, uh, which is quite diverse. You know, you have an apple orchard over there, maybe some crops over there. You have some pigs and chickens running around. Um, in, in reality, of course, it's far more ordered, monocultural. We have and uh, larger and industrialized. So essentially the U.S. Um, uh, Midwest, as well as areas like the Central Valley in California, essentially become a factory floor of farming. So we have this, these huge kind of plains with planted with just single crops, usually soy or um, wheat, or something like that uh, and at the margins uh, everything has been cleared so there's no weeds nothing like that it's all about kind of maximizing the uh, the profit that comes from the land which is you know understandable um, for an insect though that's that's a kind of death sentence that it's a desert in terms of food um, there's nothing there's no refuge there for them to, to live or to feed and what makes it worse is that this land has been doused in in chemicals and um, the chemicals used on US farmland are some of the most potent in the world. Um, the European Union, for example, has phased out the use of some of the, the worst kinds of neonicotinoids, which is this class mm-hmm. of uh, pesticide. 
that um, sends insects mad or, 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 or uh, kills them very, very effectively and indiscriminately. Um, but um, these neonics, as they're called, uh, are spread liberally across U.S. farmlands. By one measure, the farmland is, um, you know, 48 times more toxic than it was 25 years ago it, across the U.S. West because there's this continual layering of, of pesticides that seeps into the soils, uh, seeps in throughout the plants, picked up by bees in pollen, gets into waterways, so it affects aquatic insects and other animals. It's even being picked up by the birds as they... Um, as they eat the insects uh, and, and the and the food too, so um, there is this circular addiction, as you say, because the farmers are being promised that this is the only way that they're going to make money off their land, because this is the only way to banish pests. Um, and so they are sold uh, the seeds already coated in these neonics. A lot of the time, there isn't much choice for them; they have to kind of go along with this. I'm not blaming farmers for this uh, at all it's more about big ag i think pushing these uh, these chemicals upon farmers and uh, i think the sadness is uh, beyond the huge loss of life of insects which harms us all is that it's often not necessary i mean there's there's plenty of research now showing farming yields do fine without applying all these chemicals and, and sometimes can be harmed by them so uh, we're creating this huge kind of toxic legacy that uh, is is unnecessary, but um, it, it does well for big ag. So we're kind of locked into it for now. I, I want to linger for a minute on these neonicotinoids because the University of Minnesota has done some research on discovering it in low levels in our lakes and streams. As you've noted, it's getting into waterways. Both, by the way, both in the agricultural parts of our state, but also near our cities, which is indicating to us that people are using some form of this on their lawns and gardens, right? Is the, mm. is the answer, I mean, when you talk about big ag uh, and addressing this, is the answer, I mean, some kind of EPA regulation? Is it state-by-state state legislation, given, given the dire effect that that this chemical these chemicals are having yeah the, i mean the epa is is the primary uh, tool there i mean the epa has declined so far under pressure from um agricultural lobbyists to to not curb the use of neonicotinoids um they i mean there are certain rules around the kind of times and uh, uh types of application of them um, but in terms of actually banning them as a class uh, the EPA is not has so far signaled it doesn't want to do that. Um, obviously, states can can move to do that. California has 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 got some some rules around this, um, but states such as uh, Minnesota less so. Um, uh, Nicks, I mean, they should. I mean, the terrible thing about them for me is that there was this the book Silent Spring by Rachel Carson in the in the seventies, mm. sorry, the sixties, which kicked off the kind of modern environmental movement, targeted DDT, this this chemical that was being kind of sprayed everywhere and causing the um, uh, the loss of bald eagles, among other things, which was, you know, incredibly un-American, of course. And there was this huge kind of movement to, to ban it. Um, and uh, and that was successful. And they managed, managed to get rid of DDT. Um, neonics, by one calculation, are about 7,000 times more toxic to bees than DDT. So we've wow. replaced 
replaced one class of terrible chemicals which you know inspired a whole generation of environmentalists um, with a, with another which is 7000 times worse and it and it's and it kind of gets everywhere the strength of it is it it goes throughout the plant that you're trying to protect from pests for, so it protects all of it um from pests but it, that means that it leaches everywhere so you know there's studies showing that it's been found in you know spinach and onions and green beans in even in baby food um in drinking water in the US um in waterways so it's kind of getting everywhere um and we need to really think seriously about if that's if that's something we want to have as a ongoing legacy you have a very vivid description of what a um agricultural field may look like to an insect and so i i wanted to read this you write, what may look like a benign field of corn to us is to an insect more akin to a home that has been replaced by a fetid pit filled with whirring buzzsaws and famished crocodiles. Can you explain why? <laughs> yes. Um, if, if you could, uh, yeah, forgive the allusion to, to all those terrible things. But, <laughs> um, yeah, because because essentially... You, you've stripped out what was once a complex kind of ecosystem of grasslands, different wildflowers, you know, maybe a stream, maybe a hedgerow, maybe, you know, some trees. You've, you've Complex is, is varied and insects like that. They like kind of variety of life. That's why you saw during the pandemic when we started to kind of cut um, beside the highways less and kind of backed off cities and people stayed indoors a bit and things were allowed to grow weeds were allowed to grow you saw this kind of explosion of life didn't you and that was kind mm. of triggered in part by because the insects kind of came back um so insects like disorder and jumble we like kind of order and tidiness and to us that means cutting down our lawns and cutting down um all the um farmable land down to its bare components so we can we can plant what is the most profitable crop which is usually yeah soy or corn or or whatever it may be and so for insects unfortunately they've lost that complex ecosystem that uh sustains them and what they're left with is a single plant and uh one one scientist said to me it's like all you offer to eat is chips nothing but chips even if you don't like chips that's what you've got you've got chips mm. <laughs> you don't mm. eat them you can't you aren't able to eat them it's, it doesn't matter that's what you've got um and so uh, for a lot of insects that's obviously not sustainable um they also have nowhere to live because of the weeds like i was saying have been cut near the the borders of the field so there's no there's not even a kind of refuge at the fringes for them uh and there's these terrible uh, toxic chemicals that have been laid in on top of them. So it's an extremely perilous place for insects. Um, there's a lot of people who would tell you that, you know, people's backyards are probably, you know, um, or even like places in, in cities are, are, you know, at the margins of railway tracks or <laughs> beside mm, highways mm -hmm. or something, a, a better habitat for, for insects than, than farmland because, um, they at least provide some of these some of these things that insects miss out on when they uh, when they're over agricultural areas. You know, I was reading not too long ago about some of the work that the Bee Lab at the University of Minnesota is doing, and 
one of the one of the th- projects that they've undertaken is breeding bees that are resistant to mites and bacterial disease. You have some great writing in the book about what has happened following colony collapse. I think most of our listeners are familiar with that. Where are we in the arc of understanding what happened? And then starting to protect bees from that, if if that's even possible. So where do things stand? Yeah, I mean, if you kind of cast your mind back kind of probably about 15 years ago now, uh, there was this huge, kind of huge panic that we would just lose all right. bees because of right. colony collapse disorder. And you can see why, because it was kind of like a, uh, a seemingly inexplicable um, disappearance of them. Like the Mary Celeste, the, 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 the ship that was found with, without its crew on board, like the, the bees were just not there. Um, anymore, and the beekeepers were stunned to see, um, to stunned to see this. And we still have not got a definitive answer on this, although there are some very strong suspects which are linked to the causes of the broader decline of insects. Um, so it's not a it's not an existential threat to to bees anymore. The colony collapse um, it, it's it's not something that's um, the kind of primary driver of of loss but it certainly helped it helped to raise awareness i think um you can uh, got it on the cover of time magazine didn't it uh yeah, it, it kind of got the right. issue of bees and save the bees and and bees being this kind of avatar the kind of symbol of insects and insect declines so whenever you have a kind of rally a kind of public protest around saving insects i mean they do exist <laughs> these these protests um you'll usually have people dressed dressed as honeybees or you know have pictures of bees <laughs> right. because bees are the ones that yeah, they're the symbol they're the kind of standard bearer for kind for of like the polar and, bear with climate change for right while, right yeah yes exactly it's our kind of most accessible point people kind of understand and like bees we don't like being stung by them but we kind of appreciate what they do for us and when we think of bees most of us think of honeybees of course which are the um you know the managed bees in hives we don't really think of the the wild bees as much um but they they're the ones that have become the kind of uh, symbols of insect decline so um it was it was useful in that respect of getting it on the agenda in terms of causes though we're still left with the probable causes of that collapse but on a much grander scale unfortunately um which are you know uh, climate change habitat loss and um and pesticide use so as awareness has risen as the vil- visibility of what's happening with bees has risen what's happened with the populations yeah well there's there's been some in the last kind of five years or so there's been this kind of outpouring of research looking at insect declines where previously scientists didn't really bother to look i mean what was the point i mean insects are everywhere why would you count them <laughs> it seemed it seemed kind of pointless to do but um they um they uh they started to do this around 2017 when that um that study came out which i mentioned in germany showing those those huge declines um and uh they're now these declines are pretty much everywhere you look i mean there was these the huge decline in denmark i mentioned in the rainforest of puerto rico 
um, this uh, scientist, uh, Brad Listos from upstate New York. He went to he visited the rainforest there in the 1970s and conducted these studies where he had these plates with sticky substances on them, uh, which kind of um, trapped insects in them, and he counted them in the, in the morning. Um, and he went back there just a couple of years ago, and um, he, these sticky plates, he recreated the uh, experiment. The sticky plates were actually clear. There was nothing there on them. And he was oh. astonished. And there was 98% of insects by biomass had gone since the 70s. Again, a protected area. A protected, it's one of the only rainforests in um, on U.S. territory in Puerto Rico. Um, uh, these insects have virtually disappeared since the 70s. Um, you're seeing insects um, disappear in France, in Germany, um, you know, 50% of British butterflies have, have gone over the last uh, 50 years. In Australia, you're seeing um, declines too of, of beetles, um, of particular butterflies, of bees. Um, the declines are, are kind of astonishing, really, if you think about the, the scale of them. I mean, I, I kind of tend to think of it when we, in comparison to the animals we all think about when we think about conservation such as you know tigers or lions or elephants i mean mm. we've lost kind of 95 percent of the world's tigers uh, i think it would be safe to say but that's over the course of 100 150 years of kind of hunting habitat loss um we've lost the same order of magnitude of insects just you know just since the kind of the 80s or the 90s i mean it's it's quite incredible the time the time span at which this has all happened it's really accelerated in the last kind of 20 30 years or so um uh, unfortunately unfortunately for them so we're kind of only we're kind of really playing catch-up still with with what that means you're listening to a conversation with oliver millman um as part of animal month on big books and bold ideas his new book is titled the insect crisis the fall of the tiny empires that rule the world Oliver, before we move off of bees, I, we really have to talk about these bee brokers. I, I had, I'd read about them, I think, in, you know, like in daily journalism, but your book goes into even deeper uh, insight into how these brokers work. And I had no idea that, you know, they pack up these bees and they frantically drive to the next fields and they let the bees do the work and then they pack them all up. I mean, Tell, the, I, I would think these bee brokers are going to become ever more valuable and in demand, especially for you know crops like the almond crops in in California. Tell me a little bit about their work. Yeah, I mean, I'm the same as you. I I went to the Central Valley in California and, and met um, this bee broker, and I had no idea such a job exists. <laughs> um, this lady lady called Denise, and her her job is essentially to match beekeepers with their hives of um, honeybees with farmers who need their crops pollinated in, in Central Valley in California. A lot of that is almonds. Um, so each year she kind of acts as a kind of ma matchmaker, matching up the two. Um, and this job is so lucrative for her now that she only works for, you know, a couple of months a year and then she spends the rest of the time playing golf. Um, so she <laughs> she 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 managed to kind of live off this as a as a job which is 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 kind of incredible um but also it's incredible because we've essentially we're using small kind of buzzy insects that can sting us mm. as contracted agricultural workers right um unpaid 
for them, of course. Uh, and we put them into hives and strap them onto trucks and then move them around the country to pollinate citrus down in Florida or blueberries up in Washington State or almonds in California. So every managed hive in Minnesota, much just like every other state, will, will go to uh, around the country to um, do this work because it's becoming more and more valuable. It's becoming more valuable financially. Uh, because the wild bees are being killed off due to us killing them off through our, the way we, we, we're doing things. And also because the food production needs are now so dependent on honeybees and, and growing that we kind of need to continually keep their numbers up, even as they're assailed by disease and other, other effects. So it's this constant kind of treadmill to try and desperately keep up with um mm. with the system we've created for ourselves and it's it was quite incredible to see in uh, in real life I, yeah i want you to describe what you saw but but here's my question is it then the case that a lot of this used to be done by wild bees and as you've said the numbers have declined precipitously and so these bee uh owners beehive owners are cultivating bees for this work I mean, a lot of this is not just happening naturally anymore. This is all kind of on a wheel of production, and the beehive owners are a big part of that. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So this oh. idea that beekeepers are just these hobbyists, you know, that just have a couple of hives out the back, and you, you get, you know, you get some nice honey for your toast. I mean that. I mean that is still the case in some respects but a lot of beekeepers now are essentially you know contracted workers um who have an asset that, mm. that is of use to the agricultural industry and the agricultural industry is so dependent upon that asset because through the clearing of of fields for single crop for because of the use of the pesticides they've wiped out all the natural wild pollinators around their crop so they've created the demand for themselves if you see what i mean um uh, and so if you have a huge expanse of almonds in california you've killed off a lot of the wild bees there's not enough bees around uh to pollinate your crop so you need to get in bees from elsewhere so you will contract a beekeeper to come with a truck laden with hives of bees and um, set set the hives down next to your crop and pollinate it, and you can sell your almonds. Um, but the the pollination supply is becoming so overstretched now, because even the honeybees are affected by these the same thing. They're affected by disease. They're affected by climate change, pesticide uses. So it's a kind of very short term fix. So it's becoming it's becoming harder and harder to match the demand of pollination. Um, through this through this method uh, and it's also very vulnerable to a single shock you know you depend on one creature <laughs> for your food supply what happens if there's a disease that wipes out half of them mm. you're, you're in you're in huge trouble um, and I mean it's led to these extraordinary um, developments I mean you mentioned bee brokers another thing I found when I was there they're, they're bee rustlers thieves that will steal the bees off trucks and there's a dedicated bee detective with the wonderful name of rowdy freeman who goes around <laughs> trying to track down these thieves who've taken the taken the bees at the dead of night 
in these heists um, because um, because the pollination has become so valuable they can resell them uh, onto other farmers because they're all desperate for pollination. So it's created this kind of really strange, warped, circular addiction um, that um, is is not natural in any way. There's no part of that that is natural beyond the actual mm, pollination right. itself, I suppose. But it's a kind of a real a real subversion of of, of how the system would look uh, in a kind of in a in a kind of natural sense. You know, I, I thought what you wrote about how insects are adapting was was really interesting because I don't I think when we think of of a crisis, you know, and we see as you've talked about other species disappearing, we think, well, that's the end of it. There's there's nowhere to go, but there is. But you have been, it looks like, reporting on some research about how some insects are going to adapt to climate change and diminishing habitat. And I guess what I wondered about that was whether it's too soon to really understand how they're, how insects are going to weather what we're experiencing, or do you have some examples of that that gives you a sign of of how they'll endure because I think at the beginning of our conversation you said insects will outlive us on the planet mm. yes well I mean they, they they have the advantage of course of sheer numbers and diversity so there's about a million named species of insect um, but that's only the tip of the iceberg there's probably 5 million 10 million 50 million we, we don't know because there aren't enough scientists enough time in the world to, to count them and find them all um, so, I mean, I, I kind of made the comparison in the book that there's this one uh, class of assassin flies that uh, go around kind of sucking the brains out of other flies. And just, just that type of uh, that type of fly has more species in it than all the mammals in the world. There's about 5,000 <laughs> mammals, types of mammals in the world. There's about 7,000 types of this fly that goes around sucking the brains I mean, out of other flies. So, Oliver, people are going to hear this and say, okay, what's the problem then? <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. I mean, that, I mean, that's, yeah, that's the challenge with insects, isn't it? Unfortunately, right. I mean, flies, flies are a really good example, though, of, of creatures that we generally hate, yeah. but are, are critical to us. I mean, they are the, one of the biggest pollinators of food. Uh, they're the biggest pollinators of food, our food sources below bees. Um, you know, you might not like flies, but you probably like chocolate. And a fly is the only oh, yeah. thing, a little tiny midge, is the only thing that is able to pollinate the cacao plant to give us chocolate, coffee as well. Um, so, I mean, you can kind of quite easily kind of say you don't like flies, <laughs> but a world without them would mean no coffee, no chocolate, and dead bodies all over the place because nothing could break it down, and feces all over the place because nothing could break it down. I mean, that's not really a world, I think, any of us would really want to uh, would want to kind of live in. Um, uh, so yeah, they're 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 critically important in terms of in terms of um, adaptations. We are seeing some. I mean, I found out I, I got really into monarch butterflies as as many people do because they're beautiful. Mm -hmm. um, and followed their migration. I went to central Mexico to see where they. They spend their winter times. They make this epic journey thousands of miles from the U.S., uh, uh, the northeast of the U.S., the midwest of the U.S., down to Mexico um, and Canada as well. Um, and uh, that, that 
journey is being threatened due to to climate change um and so the ranges of the of the trees that they rely upon are changing the ranges of their habitat in the us and canada are doing changing so their journey is becoming longer and scientists have actually found out their flight muscles are getting bigger and stronger because they have <laughs> they're kind of almost kind of evolving in real time which, which we all do of course um to, to cope with these longer journeys but that's not going to maybe be sufficient we're already seeing huge declines in their their numbers and their their range so there there are some adaptations like that that will happen um some insects will make it through the um uh, but unfortunately they're the ones that we tend to dislike i mean it's not that all insects will disappear it's that we are creating conditions that are ideal for insects we dislike and we're doing a very good job of killing off the insects we tend to love and value so you know a world that is hotter and wetter and full of more people and more trash is perfect for mosquitoes and cockroaches and bed bugs um it's not perfect for for bees and butterflies and i think um, we all kind of prefer one over the other can we do a conversation about insects without talking about murder hornets? I don't think we can. <laughs> <laughs> I loved your yeah. chapter on this. And I, I just I want to read a little bit from before you talk about it from what you wrote. For weary Americans in the midst of a harrowing coronavirus pandemic that had paralyzed normal life and precipitated mass unemployment, the prospect of murder hornets, a nickname used in Japan for the creatures, advancing across the country was confirmation that 2020 was cursed. <laughs> I, clearly, there was an overreaction about murder hornets. But, but what did you learn about them, Oliver? And are they still out there? <laughs> they are yes and <laughs> are I think, they um, oh no they are and, and i think um a lot of entomologists got uh, got very kind of uh, worried about the use of the word murder uh <laughs> because people started uh, being concerned that they were going to be murdered by these hornets the murder, <laughs> the murder right. hornets are not hunting down um humans they're not serial killers uh, they murder instead uh, bees. They're very adept at um, chewing the heads off bees. Um, so that is a concern um, because obviously what we were discussing before, um, pollination services are becoming stretched. Um, we kind of need all the bees we can we can get. Um, I think the, the tale of the murder hornet is one of globalisation, of us spreading things around the world to places they've never been before and then seeing the unintended consequences. So these these hornets were originally from Asia and they ended up in Washington State and uh, British Columbia and Canada and are now set to spread in, in the US mm. and, uh, well, across wow. North America, I guess. Um, because we wish, you know, because we ship goods around, because we move things around, because we have soil on our boots that we move from one country to another on, on, on an aeroplane. You know, all of these things cause invasive species, as they're called, to, to move from one place to another, and that can affect uh, local uh, flora and fauna. It can tip the balance towards the invasives uh, that, that can then spread. So, yeah, I think their tale is, is an interesting one, in terms of their name and the panic and 
and to be fair, how extremely painful their sting is. I mean, it's it can mm. actually mm. finish you off <laughs> if Have you, you are lucky enough to. Have you ever been stung by a murder hornet? No, I spoke to somebody okay. who was though, and he said it was it was the most painful experience of his life. It was like having hot needles stabbed into his arm. It was just horrendous. Oh my gosh! And it and oh. it kind of it caused he kind of got kind of shaky legs from that. Couldn't walk upstairs very easily for a while. But wow. um, so it's unpleasant. But I guess the broader story is about how we are, you know, again reshaping nature we're reshaping the natural world in ways that we don't fully understand in terms of consequences you know there's an insect that i would ask what what positive role could a murder hornet actually play in the in the not just the food chain but in in our ecosystem i mean why are they there and would it matter if we figured out a way to kill them off um, I mean, probably in the US, it would not matter in a kind of broader sense, in a kind of cold hearted way if we were to kill them all off, because they're an imported species. I mean, they they are part of a broader tapestry in Asia, because they evolved there. And local bees there have a defense against them when they attack. Wow. They're not just helpless, yeah. they kind of cluster around the, the murder hornet they'd all jump on like hundreds of bees jump on the murder hornet and vibrate their wing muscles um, uh, very rapidly to overheat them. So they cook the murder hornet's death. So they have a kind of like a a gang response to them, uh, which bees here in the U S don't because they obviously didn't evolve with them. They don't know what they are. Um, So they do play a role in uh, their native range. They're part of the, uh, the whole kind of food web. Here, you can make an argument that they don't, and so we could get rid of them. But again, it's 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 us that's moved them here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they they didn't hijack a plane and come over to the US. <laughs> we 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 kind of brought them over. All of these problems are being um, caused by us. We cannot blame, uh, you know, we can't blame murder hornets for being here. We can't blame, you know malaria for spreading and dengue spreading from their natural ranges uh, because the world is getting warmer and therefore the mosquito range is expanding you know animals are just and creatures are responding to conditions presented in front of them and we're presenting a, a range of conditions that are very handy for a lot of things we don't like so i thought of you when and the work you do as an environmental reporter uh, when I was reading a, an interview recently with Robin Wall Kimmerer, uh, you're probably familiar with her. Yes, that's right. The uh, yeah, the author of Braiding Sweetgrass. But but unlike many of Robin's other, you know, writings about what's happening environmentally, she was talking about the power of optimism in environmentalism, and she said. So much of what we think about in environmentalism is finger wagging and gloom and doom. But when you look at a lot of those examples where people are taking things into their hands, they're joyful. That's healing, not only for land, but for our culture as well. And it feels good. You know, kind of a rare beam of light, I think, in an otherwise, I don't know, pretty dark horizon when it comes to environmental degradation. I was curious, Oliver, about in your daily reporting, how much of that 
of perhaps those examples where there is a reason to be optimistic that you're that you're encountering and writing about i mean i think there is yeah i I don't want to give the impression that this is all gloom and doom and i certainly in the book i look at some of the kind of solutions to this and some of the movements um, being made towards making you know farming more sustainable um, to acting on pesticides there's obviously a huge movement around acting on the climate crisis um, and you know i've just seen that transform just in the last you know maybe five years perhaps i mean bef- before then i never really thought to speak to somebody who was kind of 18 or 19 about this but now they're kind of leading a whole revolution in our people's consciousness uh, you know the youth climate movement led by Greta Thunberg um, uh, about climate change and you're seeing a kind of whole change in the in the public around attitudes towards this and we're finally getting some action on that um so there is kind of hope there although obviously the picture is still pretty bleak in terms of uh, global heating um and similarly with with insects i i think there is there is hope there i mean i think people are beginning to understand now how important they are to our lives that they're all not all just annoying pests. They kind of can think that, oh, yeah, I, I have that kind of recollection that when I was a kid and we drove across country, there were insects splattered on the windshield and I just don't see that anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's a sense of loss. There's a sense mm, that right. something's missing from our kind of everyday lives that should be there. Um, and uh, the encouraging thing about insects is they are the great survivors. They survived five mass extinctions the one they kind of predate the dinosaurs, they outlive the dinosaurs. If we give them a chance to hang on, they will do. We just got to give them, they just got to give them a kind of foothold, a place that where they can um, they can survive a little bit of uh, an easier time, and uh, and I think they they will be okay. And if they're okay, we're going to be okay. I think part of the challenge is breaking through the noise, Oliver, of as you've said, the gloom and doom reporting on climate change and everything else in the world there is to worry about. And and I know that's a challenge for you in your daily reporting, but also for a book like this. How do you think about how to do that? Yeah, I mean, it's, we're not we're not short of problems, are we, in the world? And I mean, I wrote this book in the in the depths of the pandemic, and it was kind of hard to think about ladling another issue on top of people on top of that at the time um but i think the the good thing about um solving the insect crisis is that all of the solutions to it will help us it's not just about we have to save the bugs for their own sake because not many people are going to rally behind that even though we are you know a lot of us are fond of bees and butterflies but you know act this is very much a human crisis rather than insect one so if we do act on climate change that's going to obviously benefit us if we you know restore kind of ecosystems farmland forests to a more natural state that's going to be a much greater benefit to us to places we can enjoy for cleaner air for cleaner water Uh, and pesticides i mean i think none of us really want pesticides in our food or in our water um, just because we want to kill off some um, some aphids uh, that may be munching on some nearby crops. So all of these things can benefit us. I think you can get strong public support behind a lot of those things. It just takes the kind of the political will to to get it done. Hmm. 
Oliver Millman's book is called The Insect Crisis, The Fall of the Tiny Empires That Run the World. Oliver, thank you. Thank you so much.